Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. We are continuing in our series through the book of Revelation as part of our Bible in a Year series. And we started this series last week, if you were here, and we're going to basically continue where we left off last week. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 1. This is all the way at the back of your Bibles if you're new to Scripture. Revelation 1, verse 9 And we'll pick up there in a moment. By way of reminder, we started our series last week, uh, and we spent the entire teaching last week simply trying to answer the question, what is Revelation? What genre are we stepping into when we pick up the book? What type of writing are we about to engage in? And the short version of last week, for those who missed it, is that Revelation actually operates in three genres at once. Revelation is a letter to real people in real first century churches. It's a prophecy designed to challenge and encourage God's people in their trials, and it's apocalyptic literature which pulls back the curtain on reality, unveiling the spiritual reality which which sits behind their present and future circumstances. Now, all of Revelation qualifies as all three of these genres. But as we study our way through the book, you'll notice that certain sections of the book uh, borrow more heavily from one genre than the other. And today, we're tackling chapters one through three, which reads most heavily like a letter to the churches. We pick up in Revelation 1, verse 9. This is what it says. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Most believe he was exiled or imprisoned there for preaching the gospel. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see. And send it to the seven churches, uh, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pegamum, uh, Theotara, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, that's Jesus, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was, was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. From here, John is going to write down seven different messages from Jesus to the seven churches. But before we start reading those letters, I want to take a few minutes to re-enter the first century world. Because without some concept of the world that they lived in, the words and the message of Revelation will make little to no sense. By the first century, when Revelation was written, the Roman Empire has spread to dominate the world, conquering everyone along the way and maintaining unity through violent military force. But after a people were conquered, the way that unity and stability were maintained throughout the empire was through allegiance to the Roman worldview and through worship of the emperor and to some extent the Roman pantheon of gods. And so what happened is that in the beginning, as Rome was being established as an empire, their emperors were often deified in death. So in life, they're an emperor, but in death, they almost take on this divine status. They are deified in the minds of the people. But as the empire progresses through time, that actually begins to shift to the point where emperors are then worshipped as divine while they're still alive. And, and emperor worship becomes this huge pillar of Roman life and the stability of the empire. So empire, emperor worship actually becomes very common uh, and a common way of uniting all of these people who have been conquered. Uh, common titles for the emperor in the time that Revelation was written included these, the ruler of the world, the world's sure salvation, blessed protector and savior, Lord, Lord of all, God, the Son of God, and Savior, to name a few. But if the emperor actually was all of these things, then it follows that you would worship that emperor. It only makes sense that you would bring sacrifices to temples worshiping that emperor. And so great temples were erected across the Roman world, and some of the biggest and most powerful temples in existence were actually built in places like Ephesus and Pergamum and many of the places in Asia Minor that John is writing to. 
In fact, the emperor worship cult had massive sway and influence in the province of Asia, which, which is the audience that John is writing to. And so uh, the Christians there have this daily pressure to conform. And they have all sorts of questions that they're wrestling with day by day. Hey, can I buy meat at the market that, that was sacrificed in a pagan temple? Can we go to the pagan temples to do our banking like everyone else does? Should we acknowledge the sovereignty or even the divinity of the emperor at public events. Uh, in many cases, you would swear allegiance to the emperor or acknowledge his divinity or even burn incense in front of a statue to the emperor before you could conduct a business deal in the Roman world. And the Christians are caught in the middle. Can I do this business transaction? Can I buy or consume this meat? Can I bank where everyone is banking? Can I acknowledge the sovereignty of the emperor at public events? Think of the way we do the Pledge of Allegiance. What should I do while that's happening? What if I'm threatened with imprisonment? What if I'm threatened with death? The Romans believe that the Christians are threatening the unity of their empire. They're undermining the Roman worldview, threatening the very social fabric that holds everyone together. And so they face daily relentless pressure to conform from the most powerful empire on earth. In all likelihood, um, there has already been, at the time of this writing, incredible persecution under the emperor Nero, which some of you, some of you have studied history. You know a bit about that. Um, thousands were martyred for being Christians under Emperor Nero. Um, they, that's happened. They know that more persecution is on its way. And even though they appear to be in between major persecutions, they face this daily uh, relentless pressure. They risk being drowned in Roman ideology, worship of the emperor, worship of the Roman gods. And so it's into this very complex world that these words, that these letters are written. And we'll pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, John was given a word for each of the seven churches, starting with Ephesus, which was closest to his location, and he's going to move in a counterclockwise circle around Asia Minor. Uh, But remember from last week that the number seven is significant. Uh, It signals a fullness or completion, particularly in apocalyptic literature. And so each church is going to receive a, a challenge and an encouragement that's specific to them. But it's also for us. Uh, Seven is John's way of signaling that this is for the church universal. We pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, 
that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent, turn back, and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, who perseveres, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say there are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, you will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the church in Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That's likely a reference to the pagan temple where the emperor was worshipped. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who, who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember, therefore, or repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And on and on it goes. To the, to the church in Theatira, to the church in Sardis, to the church in Philadelphia, to the church in Laodicea, to seven real churches, all facing similar issues, but each responding to those issues in a different way. Jesus speaks real relevant words to them through the power of the Spirit. Don't conform, he says, to the patterns of pagan empire, but remain faithful witnesses 
who love God alone, if you persevere in this amidst all the pressure, against all the war of ideologies, against threat of imprisonment, against threat of death, if you persevere in following me, Jesus says, you will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. You will pass through the second death unharmed. I will give you hidden manna and a new name. And he goes on and on. In the churches that, that we didn't read, he says, I will give them, the one who perseveres, authority over the nations. Their names will be in the book of life. They will be in God's presence forever. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. But you have to press on. You have to persevere. I know what you're up against. I see it. But you have to persevere. In these words, we should find ourselves the people of God caught between the pressures of conformity to secularism and empire, caught between the seduction of the world and its way of thinking, and, on the other hand, unqualified allegiance to Jesus. Each of us certainly faces the pressures of pledging our allegiance to political religions, to conform to the patterns of lust and consumerism and individualism that so characterize the world that we live in. We too have our faith tested and compromise is always on offer. Will you stay on the narrow path? Will you maintain your saltiness in a culture that wants to strip that from you? Will you follow Jesus through the wild forces that will tempt you to conform? These questions are worth contemplating. And and as we read these words, we too should find ourselves challenged by their rebuke and at the same time uh, encouraged to persevere with Jesus into the new heavens and the new earth. This, This is the challenge that Jesus brings to the church. He says, repent, Endure hardships for my name. Don't grow weary. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Remain true to my name. Don't tolerate false prophets or indulge in sexual immorality. Wake up. Don't be lukewarm. Hold fast to the gospel. Keep my commands and endure patiently. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. 
life is really hard. The pressures that will oppose you in your walk with Jesus are very real. But within these words, there is a call for the church to persevere. A call to wake up. There's a call in the book of Revelation to detach ourselves from the ways of this world that will fade away and to realign ourselves with the God of the universe who will never fade away. To those whom I love, Jesus writes, or Jesus says, John writes, to those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Those were his words to the church in Laodicea. Wake up, Jesus says. I stand at the door. I rebuke and discipline those I love and I want you to see what's coming. I want you to see the new heavens and the new earth on the horizon. Don't conform. Don't give up. I'm right here. I stand at the door. I'm right outside. I'm knocking. I'm with you. I'm among you. Remember from last week that Revelation is about uh, unveiling or revealing Jesus. What do we see of Jesus in, in chapters 1 through 3 that we've been studying today? Well, we see him glorified in the heavenly realms, face shining like the sun, radiant in power. His voice, his eyes, his presence, indescribable. John struggles to put it into words. Do not be afraid, he says. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And, and on he goes. This stunning picture of Jesus glorified and victorious. But there's something else that I want us to see as we close. The veil is pulled back on reality. We get a glimpse behind the scenes. We see Jesus as we've never seen him before up to this point. But where is he in this vision? John says, chapter 1, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. What are the lampstands? 
the churches. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus. Where is Jesus in the vision at this point? He's among the lampstands. He's among the church. He's with his people. He's in the heavenly realms and in a place that we can't see. I cannot see Jesus in his glorified state the way that John is seeing Jesus. But that place in John's vision is right here. He's among his churches. And each church receives a unique message, but every single message ends with the same phrase. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each week as we study our way through the book of Revelation, I want us to ask ourselves each week, what does this reveal to us about Jesus? And today's text, it's, it's rich with challenge and rebuke and encouragement. And, and all of that is as relevant today as it's ever been. We, we ought to read through these letters. We, got, we ought to let them shape us. We ought to let them wake us up out of our apathy. But part of the reality that we need to wake up to is the fact that Jesus is alive and well and among his churches. The glorified Jesus is here. By the power and presence of his spirit. And because he's here, miracles can happen. And because he's here, the dead get raised to life in every sense of the word. And because he's here, we can sit and we can listen and we can hear him. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to our church. To you, to me. Some of you know uh, the story of how this church was planted. And it all started with a simple word uh, that God spoke to my friend, uh, Matt Karsh, years ago. And uh, he was a college football player. And he was riding on the team bus um, back, back from Whitworth, headed through downtown Spokane. And as he was sitting on the bus headed through downtown Spokane, God spoke a word to him, really simple, just said, there's going to be a church here. Now at the time, and this is the most remarkable part of the story to me, at the time, he wasn't walking with Jesus. In fact, he would say he wasn't saved. He had yet to give his life to to, to Jesus and to be baptized. And yet... 
God spoke that word. There's going to be a church here. What, what is that? That's God, God's there walking amongst his people and, and speaking. And, and a seed was planted that day that grew into the community that's sitting here this morning. Jesus walks among his people. He walks among his churches. And he speaks. When the veil gets pulled back, we see Jesus shining like the sun in in this glory. But in today's passage, he's really close. He's right here with us, among his people, and he speaks. Many of you know uh, Chris and Alex Losey. I'm going to share a story about you guys. I forgot to ask for permission. Quick disclaimer. Uh, But you can rebuke me afterward if I'm out of line. but as we've been talking and praying and processing together, it's become really clear to me and to others that God is calling them to one day plant a church. Don't know where, don't know when, don't have any of those details. There's been a- enough words, enough confirmation over enough years that they say, okay, we're, we're going to start to carry this dream. One day God wants us to plant a church, Uh, but, and they don't know any of the details, I don't know any of the details, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows when and where he would call them to plant a church. And so what do we do as we're discerning that and carrying that? We trust that Jesus is going to speak, that, that in the right time, Jesus is going to speak. He's going to make it really clear when and where that's going to happen. What's their job right now? It's to grow in maturity with Christ, just like everyone else in the room, and to listen. To listen. Grow in maturity of Christ and and be a listening people. To those who have ears, Let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. As he walks among his people, Jesus will tell them when and where and how. They just listen and obey. What's the heart of discipleship to Jesus? Well, we give our lives to Jesus We live life with Jesus, and when he speaks, we listen. We respond. We follow in big things and in small things. That's it. That's discipleship. Jesus says, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. That's it, brothers and sisters. That is the heart of discipleship. We listen to Jesus' voice, spoken to the churches by his spirit, and we follow him. So as we close this morning, uh, that's, that's exactly what I want us to do. Uh, so you can go ahead, if you have a Bible open, you can, you can clear off your lap. Uh, and I'll actually invite you to stand with me, if you would, uh, before we head to the communion tables. And I want us uh, to take a moment to slow down, to take a deep breath, And just listen. For some of you, that might seem like a stressful thing. Oh my gosh, how do I do this? What am I supposed to do? I have to strain. It's not really how it works. Uh, What this is, it's really simple. It's a letting go. That's how I think of it. We just let go of everything really simply say, Jesus, come, come Holy Spirit and speak. Jesus says his sheep listen to his voice. They know his voice, his sheep, not the super spiritual ones, not the super spiritual sheep and not the prophetically gifted sheep, not the sinless sheep. Not the sheep that does devotionals three times a day and hasn't had a major sin this week. That's not not how it works. He says, my sheep, very simple people from every walk of life, from every conceivable background and story and experience and struggle, that's the church. Those are the ones who Jesus is speaking to. And so we listen. For some of you, um, that might come in the form of a vision. Maybe it's based on today's passage, Jesus glorified. For some of you, that may come in the form of a challenge or a rebuke as to to where you are, as to the posture you've taken toward him. Remember, he, he rebukes and he challenges the ones that he loves. And some of you are very loved this morning. For some of you, it's, it's an encouragement. It's a call to persevere. It could be a thought, a word, an image, a scripture. But every one of us are sheep. Even my friend Matt Karsh, who had yet to give his life to Jesus, was hearing from Jesus. Future sheep in the room. Listen, he'll speak to you. So I'll pray, and then we'll take a few minutes to listen. Lord Jesus, we come before you very simply this morning as as your sheep, um, some of us very aware of our own uh, flaws and shortcomings, some of us, God, tragically overcomplicating our relationship with you and what it means to hear from you. But because we're sheep, you say we'll recognize your voice.
Let those who have ears, let those who are sheep, let every single man, woman, and child, they know my voice, they recognize my voice. Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we invite you to come now, Lord, in the power and presence of your Spirit and speak. We're your kids, we're your sheep, we're known by you, we're loved by you, we're embraced by you, and we're listening.